So, man, I, like I said, so much to talk about. I want to jump on to this. You know, I, I'm still missing some stuff in between because there's so, so much stuff to talk about. But well, I'll tell you this. We ended up landing the Richie Richie deal over at Death Jam. We landed him a deal at Death Jam. Wait, wait, wait. Before you, before, okay, before, uh, why are you speaking on that? Why are you speaking on that? I just got to say, you know, when you land, when you guys landed that deal over there at Def Jam, this is the, for the listeners. This is the, this, what is this, 95? 90, 94, 95? Season Veteran, yeah, it was about okay. 96. 96. 96. Season Veteran album came out in 96. Okay, so for the listeners, I want to, I need the listeners to know, during this time, Def Jam was sinking. Yes, it was. Def Jam was sinking and, and and they brought Warren G on over to 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 Def Jam during this same time, correct? Red Man, they, they was doing a, they was doing this, you know we thinking so let's go all out with a bang. So they brought Jay Z, Red Man, Method Man, Foxy Brown, uh, Jail Felony, Jail Felony, uh, Warren G. Um, it's a good thing you say that. It's funny you say that. I mean they had so many. Oh, DMX. DMX is the one that really saved them. Mm-hmm. They had all these artists flying around the same time, along with Richie Bitch. So my question is, how did y'all land that deal? How, how, how y'all get Def Jam knocking at the door? Tina Davis, Chris Brown's manager. Now Chris Brown. Now Chris Brown's manager. She was an intern at a, at a Def Jam. And, uh... Somehow we ran across her on the flu. We had, well, actually, we had a uh, we had this lady named Belinda. She was lightweight managing us, and she had connections and had her hands on everything and everybody. That's how we had all the labels being going to sign Rich. And um, Rich, is that your word? Yeah, Rich. You know, he had situations. He had contract situations. You know what I'm saying? And he needed he needed a label that was gonna be able to get him out of his contract situation. So I guess Dev Jam seemed to be the better choice at the time. I mean Dev Jam was making stars anyway, not understanding that Dev Jam was sinking. <laughs> so uh we hooked up with Tina Davis and Tina Davis walking right on over there. She walked right on over there and, and got the deal in place. And um, everything started getting a little weird once we got a once once Rich got the deal, you know, um, because I the, it was my production that got the deal. It was my all, my demo. All, I mean, uh, we had we had so many songs. Def Jam kind of like wanted to test us, you know what I'm saying? They wanted to put an independent record out with minimum promotion, so Rich put out the half thing album. And that did fifty thousand units. So they once that happened, they was they were sold. It was like this dude can sell fifty thousand records without any kind of promotion involved. We need to pull him on over. So um, when they did the deal, Rich kind of like he moved to L.A. And kind of well, I'm not gonna say he kind of he left us. He left us. <laughs> he moved to L.A. Started dealing with other producers and whatnot, and started recording. And uh, you know, I think 
everybody kind of know Richie Rich for the song that Jesus gets to go to heaven. Well, what people don't know is that was that was a song that I wrote. That song is a song that I wrote for Sebo. Damn. Yeah, Sebo had just lost one of his homies, I think. uh, I forget his name, but he was feeling, you know, I remember remember him coming to the studio feeling bad about that situation. So I'm like, I got a song that that Sebo might like. You know, I came up with the hook and a clean little beat for it. Well, anyway, he ended up going to jail. And never never got a chance to even really get the song. So I let Rich hear it. Rich was like, oh, I could use that for my album. So he got the song. Then he took the song to L.A. Everybody at Death Jam loved the song. But some, but they, I guess they wasn't real thrilled on the music. Now, I'm going to tell you what the music to the song is after I tell you the story. They wasn't really thrilled on the music. So they went and got Mike Mosey. Mike Mosey went and did the beat. Do Jesus get to go to heaven? It was my hook, my creation. Ah, another. Let me, tell you, <laughs> let me tell you what the beat to the song was, though. You know, Tebow's song, uh, I'm a fool, kicking up. Yeah. Right. That was the beat. Yeah. You, you thought, oh. That, that was the beat. Do Jesus get to go to heaven? So when. Steve-O got out, I told him, I said, I had a song for you, but I went on and gave the song to Rich, but Rich didn't use the beat, so here's the beat to it. So he heard the beat, he came up without the food. Well, shit, it, everything still panned out in the end. What is your relationship like to, today with Rich? I mean, I, you know, I went, I had to go do some time. I did a little fair time, and when I got home, I reached out to him. I reached out to him before I went down. But I think he got a little offended because he was asking me for some music. And I told him, I said, well, I can hook you up with my son. And I didn't mean no offense by it. It's just that, you know, me and Rich, we've been doing music for so long, for so many years, and it's, it's never really been no business involved. So a lot of the music I was doing for Rich was out of out of love. Of, it was out of love, you know, and out of the fact that we just kind of started our career together. But, you know, as you get older, Things get a little more a little more real, and at the end of the day, it becomes a business. So me and his business wasn't never really locked up. So I wasn't real I wasn't real broad about going to try to get no music to Rich because I you know I'm like well you know he's probably expecting for me to throw it to him and I'm like I need I gotta get paid. So we still got we got a good relationship. I tell you, it's gonna be a hit automatically. Because we got a chemistry that's un, you know, that just that just can't be matched. But we haven't we haven't really we haven't really been locking up on anything. I think the last thing I did for Richie Rich was uh well I brought Jay Stalin to him with the uh, grass no not grass next uh Nixon Prior Roundtree album. Mhm. Mhm. Now Jay mm-hmm. Stalin a little cat from my hood, you know, um I had Jay Stalin in the in the studio for a year before I let him even touch the microphone. And the reason why, because his you know, his brother was my best friend. And his brother passed on. His brother, you know, he died, he swallowed some, some rocks, some crack rocks and never woke up. Anyway, when when he came to my house, he knocked on my door and was like, Man, I'm I'm trying to get into the rap game. I need I need some music. 
and I told him, I said, man, you know, I, I held Jay Stalin as a baby. I was there when he was born, you know. That was my best friend's little brother. So I told him, I said, I'm going to put you on, man, but I'm going to put you on the right way. So I want you to just hang out, lock in the studio, lock in, in the studio with me and just observe, just watch and pay attention and see how it all works and how it comes about. And Jay Stalin stayed in the studio with me for a whole year, and he 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 was there same time Chichi Cole was there hanging out in my studio. He was there when Cuckoo Cow came by. He was there when Messi Mars came by. He was there when Nate Dogg came by. He was there when D-Shot came by. He was there when a lot of different cats came by my studio getting music from me. See, so he'd been around, been around this music game before he ever touched the mic. Before he even touched the mic, I just wanted him to get the game and, get, and understand how the studio worked because, you know, he was the way, I mean, he could, he could always write raps. He could always write raps, but the way he was writing raps, he was using two radios. Mm. He had one radio where he can play the music and another radio where he, he can record. <laughs> and hey. You know what I'm saying? He was, he was fine, you know? <laughs> Hey, that's how most of many people started out like that if they didn't have their own lab. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's how he was doing it, you know, but. He always, I mean, he he just had an energy and a drive that way. He really wanted to do it, and I could see that. So when you see him today, with the progress that he's made from, you say from the point you you held him as a baby, now you're looking at him today, seeing the progress that he's made, all of the the catalog he got, the label, a respected artist that's followed, that's you know representing him and his brand. What do you say about that? Well, I, I mean, I'm proud of him. I'm proud of him. I mean, I think. I think he um, he's really he's in a place where he 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 hasn't really he hasn't really got the the understanding where you know when you because everybody kind of looking to him you know what I'm saying they live wire is the you know live wire this live wire that and that's good but see when you when you carry that much um, responsibility when you carry that that much responsibility. You have to humble yourself. You have to, especially this music game, because you could be on top one minute and you could be at the bottom the next. And the position that he's in right now, it comes from me bringing him and putting him on a Richie Rich record. See, nobody had never heard of him until I can't. I, I grabbed him and put him on that Richie Rich record. Once that happened, he was like, Oh, who's this little cat? You know, Jay Stalin, you know? So I'm saying that to say... This is a Cygnus.net When you see him all over the place like he is, he kind of like... He don't really acknowledge me, me or, or Rich, for that matter. You know? And I'm not mad at him, but it's something that, you know, sometimes you got you to gotta take time to acknowledge, you know, the people who put you in the game. If you notice, I've been speaking highly of Rich because my music couldn't have never got the shine with the rapper I was I started out with the way it did with Richie Rich. Even though me and Rich, we're not really seeing eye to eye and lock it up, locking up on any music business today, I still appreciate being able to work with him, you know, because it, it's, it's the, he's the reason why my music was able to get out there the way it was. He's the reason why um, people like T... Uh, and Sebo was able to come and 
hook up with me because they, you know, they heard the music I did for Rich, you know. Pay homage. You got to pay homage to yeah, those you got to pay homage. You know, you get right. You know, because one day somebody's going to be paying homage to him. You know, because mm-hmm. he got the live wire. Live wire is big. Can't take that mm-hmm. from me, but a lot of people don't know where he got his start. You know, uh, I've seen some interviews where, you know, people ask him how he gets started, and, you know, he go into talking about he started in uh, school and partners and knowledge, you know, and he, he never did. Sometimes, I've seen a couple of interviews where he might have mentioned my name, but he don't really put it in place the way it really, really, really went down. But it's okay. You know, he, he's still young and he has a lot to learn. Like I said, with the responsibility, I think he, 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 he's become big in the Bay Area. And sometimes when you get big that quick, it's hard to really handle it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> It's a big, it's a big responsibility. I mean, Livewire is like a movement. People love Livewire. That's a little homie, though. I still got love for him. So I, I gotta ask you this, man. You, you just mentioned a little while ago. You, you was talking about the Sebo and the Richie Rich song, the swap beats and things, Mike Mosley. Um, and then you also mentioned earlier, you know, you was, you, you, you was trying to find your sound. And things like that, you know. A lot of people, that era of music. A lot of people coined that mob, the mob era, like you said, and your art. When you was producing for Tupac, Tupac, he had that mob sound, and he had that Black Panther vocals. But you know, during that era, you had the, you know, uh, the Mike Mosley, like you mentioned, Sam Bostic, EAC, Studio Tone, you know, Tone Capone, Kalu. I mean, and Banks. I mean. Out of out of that list, I got a question from a, a member on on Sickness C Four. He want to know out of all of those those producers, those names during that era, how do you feel your sound different from all those other producers? Well, that's the thing. All of us, everybody you just named, we all had our own signature sound. You know what I mean? Like me, my sound was um. My sound was it was it was town. It was an Oakland sound. It was an Oakland mob sound. Mike Mosey and Sam Bostic had like a Vallejo Fairfield mob sound. See, it was different because you gotta understand around that time there's different lifestyle. Even though we all from the Bay Area, there's a difference between cities in the Bay Area. You know what I'm saying? So my sound it kind of um. I was able to I was able to adjust my sound. So like the sound that I gave Sebo, I couldn't have gave it to Richie Rich. You know what I'm saying? Because Sebo coming from from Sacramento, he has more of a gang banging mob appeal about his rap. So his the music I was giving him had to fit that. I couldn't give it give it to Rich. Now when you speak on the other producers, I don't know if they were thinking like that. I think that people. Will, I think producers, I think artists went to them when they wanted to get that particular sound. But they came to me when they wanted a sound that that kind of was custom-made to the way they were rapping. You know, it complemented their lifestyle, it complemented their flow, it complemented what they were doing or what they wanted to do or where they were from. But if you went to, like, uh, Mike Mosley, you wanted the sound that he just was putting out. He had a sound that was unique in his own way. 
you know, I, I love Mike Mosley's production. I remember, you know, when we was working on the Marvelous Project, the uh, Ghetto, um, what is it? Blues. Ghetto Blues album. And the, the stuff he was doing, it was like, it was, it was, uh, it was unique. I loved it, you know. But it was his sound. It, it's like I couldn't have gave you a Mike Mosley sound. And I don't think he could have gave you a DJ Drill sound. So everybody had their own unique sound. And Banks had his own unique sound. He had that open funk mob music. You know, he had the open funk as to where uh, Studio Tone had that Vallejo funk. Everybody had their own little sound that, that worked for them and, and where they were coming from or who they were making music for at that time. And mine kind of just worked all around with different artists in different ways because then I end up doing I did I, I end up giving Juice a sound that was unique to him. It wasn't an Oakland sound or Sacramento sound. It was it had became a a, a San Francisco mob sound. You see what I'm saying? It was it was still mobbish, but it was it worked for a cat that was coming from the, across the bridge. And I think that's why a lot of people were coming to me because they knew I was going to give them a, a sound that was mobbish, but it wasn't. It wasn't going to sound like a Richie Rich mob sound, or it wasn't going to sound like a Steve Ball. It was going to have their own signature mob appeal or mob sound that they wanted to have. I'm not saying that any of the other producers could have couldn't do it. I just think that that's they was just really focusing on just doing what they were doing. And me, I, I always, I always try to get into an artist, the way he's living, the way he's living. That's the difference between um, cats that's making beats and producing. All those cats, you know, they are great producers, and that's what they, that's what they known for, being producers, as opposed to these new, the new generation, they just making beats, you know. And um, EAC, he's a great producer, too. I think he just got a late, a late start with getting his sound out there. You know, his start came with uh, Spice One, Trick I Got No Heart, but uh, it didn't it it didn't get a shine the way some of Spice other songs did. So you didn't really get to really get a full feel for for uh, EA Ski. He got it. He got it as as time came on. He got his shine. I think he got it on uh, the Looney's album. And that's funny because he got a big shine on the Looney's album, and I had a song on the Looney's album that didn't get that much of a shine. But that'd be the politics of the game, you know, because, you know, at the time they had a manager who wanted to manage me, and I didn't want him to manage me, so he wasn't going to let my song get the shine like some of the other songs on the album. <laughs> I, didn't get to I didn't even get to mix my song, but, you know, it's, you get that sometime in this game. Yeah. Yeah, I, I um, I got I got one more question, man. There's one more four one five question. The cover, man. This the cover was, was that was all. It's funny you said that. The cover, we had nothing to do with the cover. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with the cover. Remember, I told you, you know, Jed, he went, he was he was cool with with E with EDE. You know, he didn't really speak a much much about it, but he was going to get some game from EDE. And I guess he went to L.A. and, and Easy E hooked him up with a dude that was doing some artwork. And the dude, he had a dude out there who drew the cover up. That's why we got, if you look on the cover, we got the blue bandana. Right, right. It, look, 
with a street edge to it. So, indeed, I think that's what made us stand out. You know, mm-hmm. where Snoopy and paid attention. Indeed, I got I got to jump on you. Just you just mentioned uh, Master P. Um, shit, if if you youngsters ain't caught up yet, damn. Um, <laughs> 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 maybe you maybe you'll get a little familiar here. Uh yeah, I, I gotta give you the game on that one. <laughs> the Beats by the Pound. You end up, you know, you form a group, uh a Beats by the Pound. Um y'all y'all on board with Low Limit during No Limits Prime Arise. You know, they dropping albums every week and shit. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and doing crazy you. numbers. How was that experience? That whole experience. First of all, how did you even how how, how did you even uh, hook up with Master P and then get s- signed over there to them and start working exclusively for No Limit? Well, you know, at the beginning, I was telling you about Rich when he got his deal with Def Jam. He kind of left us in the wind, moved to L.A. So when he did that, I was like, okay. I'm going to go ahead on and... Um, this is a Cygnus.net I had a, a... I was putting out my own record, put my own record out with my own label. And uh make a long story short, I went to Priority Records to go get a production deal. And Master P was there. Now, I had did some music. I had did some business with Master P before... He was, he got over the priority records, and what it was, uh, he he got at me through through T, Freddie T Smith, and um, he said uh, he wanted to get some music, so I went to the studio, beat with him in the studio with some beats, and I had a CD with four beats on it, on the on the CD, and he I played them for him, and he he liked all of them, but he didn't have enough money to to buy all of them. He only had enough to to, to really get one of them. So I told him, you know, go ahead and take all of them and, you know, you just get at it when you can. He was like, man, I'm going to make sure I get back at you. So when I went over to Priority Records and Master P was over there, he remembered that. He was like, man, I remember I didn't have enough money to get all four of them beats. And you went on shouting to me anyway. So he was like, man, I want to I wanna give you a deal. To, uh, I want to bring you over to, to, over to No Limits to be signed uh, with my Beats by the Pound production. And I was like, uh, but I got this group I'm trying to work. You know, I had Daddy Mom at the time. That was the reason why I was at, at the Party Records in the first place, trying to get a, a production deal to put their record out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, he was like, well, we can do that deal. We can talk about that later. But right now, let's work on you being over here with a beat by the pound. So he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. We know, did the deal, and I was part of beat by the pound. And then I later on negotiated a situation between him, No Limit Records, I mean, him as being No Limit Records and, and Priority to be able to put Daddy Marlin's record out. And um, he made the song, the first song I played for him off their album, he made that the single for his movie, I'm About It. And the rest is history, man. I've been, I've been over there putting music together, working with... All the artists that was coming out, you know, while I was over there, and things were moving so fast, and you know, we we uh, we, we do a record one week, and next week it's out, and doing numbers like seven hundred thousand and approaching a million, and I'm like, 
surprised as possible, you know. <laughs> I couldn't even understand it. But he had a cold marketing scheme, you know. He had a marketing plan and a uh, – it just was – it was just um, unbeatable, you know, and it worked. Man, crazy, crazy and definitely a memorable and respected time in hip-hop. Um I, we gotta talk about we gotta talk about steady mobbing, man. You know, um, they definitely a part of of of, of core uh, Bay Area history, hip hop history. You know, um, how did all that come together? How did how did how did the steady mobbing, Bathgate, and and you and the other member, how y'all all come together and put that together? And then, like you said, leading up to where you're trying to go get a production deal at priority and eventually getting it with Master P. True story. <laughs> like I say, every every everything that I everything I did, every every song I produced with somebody has a story behind it. With Steady Mobbing is a cultural story. You know, I, uh Crook Crook from Steady Mobbing, I took him to the studio when we was doing four one five. I took him to the studio yet to years before Steady Mama came together, and he wasn't ready. <laughs> I took him to the studio, and he could, a word couldn't even come out of his mouth. He was like, yeah, I say, I'm going to take you to the studio, man. You just bust some rap. I'm ready. I took him to the studio, and he couldn't say a word. So years go by. I'm riding down the street, you know, through Ghost Town. That's where they're from. And uh, he see me. He jump out in the middle of the street, flag me down. Hey.
and we had already I had already worked the deal out where the album was gonna be coming out through No Limit slash Priority. You know, just to have that stamp on there. You know, P he was saying, you know, just to have a No Limit tank on that album was gonna make people pick that album up quicker. So I was like, I agree. But he made it very clear to me and him, you guys are not signed to no no limit. Y'all signed to DJ Duro's label. When I pay Duro, he's going to pay y'all. So that was made very clear. He said, I'm going to give y'all some chains. Gave him some no limit, you know, no limit chains to wear around their necks. He said, I'm going to give y'all some chains because y'all represent no limit. But as far as the business goes, that's, this is how it's going with DJ Duro. So they was cool with it. Everybody was cool with it. It was all good, you know. I gave them their first checks. They were able to get everything situated in their lives, and it was good. But then, uh, when the record, when we got the, when the record came out, you know, P say, uh, he told me, say, I'm, uh, I'm gonna only press up like 250,000 units on your boys, cause nobody never heard them before, so we don't really know how good they're gonna sell, you know, if they sell anything at all. And, man, the record sold the 250,000 units in the first week of the release. P called me out the blue one day. was so pumped and excited. He was like, man, the boy did better than what I thought. I'm at the present plant right now. It boy not already ran through 250,000 units. I'm getting another 250,000 pressed up right now, and they already pre-ordered to be gone. Damn. The boy was pretty much gold. So Damn. I was get gold like that, you know, and it was it was in, in a, a two weeks uh, two weeks time span. It was gold, so they was pumped, and he was pumped. So he started doing you know the game. He started doing the music game on me. You know, he started calling them and having them meet him out of town. He, hey, we going to um the Bahamas, man? Y'all come on, I got some flights already booked for y'all. You know, basically what he was doing, he was dangling money in his face and buying them cars and stuff. I, I told him, I said, listen, don't take any gifts. Don't take anything from Master P. I know he's going to offer it to you, but don't do it because that's the way to keep you in debt. <laughs> you know, because he got anything he do for y'all financially, it's going to be recoupable. You know, and they didn't really understand the game like that, you know. And I was trying to lay some, make a long story short, they, uh, all the money that was pretty, I won't say all the money, but like majority of the money, including my portion of it, them dudes kind of ran through it from that, that gold record. Mm. From advances, you know, just this every time they see TV, he cut them a check for like 15000 each, you know, they buy Versace suits whenever, video shoots, flight pier, cars there, Rolex there, you know, they was getting all kinds of stuff because he really wanted to sign him directly to No Limit. But that was, after, that was after the success that he seen he was having. Right. With he, he right. And, he, uh, and they wasn't really peeping the game. You know, I was like, you know, because one day he had his people call me and say, well, you know, we want to sign your boys directly over to No Limit. We want to make them more like a down south group. And I was like, well, I don't think that's a – Good move because y'all already got a roster full of down south artists. Why would you want to take a West Coast group and make them a down south group when they doing so well as a West Coast group? And I'm saying this in front of 
bad dead air quick so they can understand what they're trying to do with y'all. They're trying to change y'all. They heard everything that was being going, being said about them and what was going on. My contract with No Limit was only for two years. I told them, I sat them down, I said, listen, the way everything at No Limit is going is going too fast for me, and I don't really see the business panning out the way it's supposed to. So once my two years is up, I'm moving on. I'm going to bust another move. And I said, right now, you guys are in a good position. you got a gold record on yourself. So y'all can come, and we can go shop y'all another deal, and any label would be crazy not to pick y'all up with a gold record under y'all belt. They heard it. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we with that. We with that. The next thing I know, when I leave, they stayed. They back over at No Limit. They did another album called uh, Black Mafia or something like that, and um, the numbers didn't do good on it at all. Didn't do no no good numbers. I don't even know if it break, broke up. 100,000 units. So now Pete, he, he gambled with him and, and, you know, and it didn't work out. So he, now he's not answering no phone calls off of him. So they like, what's up, man? We got cars. We got homes. But we ain't got no cash. We can't put gas in the car. We can't even pay no bills at the house, at the new home. They all, they all passed. So, you know, they came back to holler at me about putting another record together because they needed some money. And um, I had some labels lined up for them that was looking good. I actually had Warner Brothers interested in them. So I put another record together on them. But what they did was they called and they tried to backdoor me with that deal with Warner Brothers. The Warner Brothers were like, well, we already talked to DJ Girl about doing a deal with y'all. But now y'all saying y'all don't really want him in the picture like that. And y'all want to run your own thing, but I already made the deal with him. So they seen that being messy, and they just kind of backed out of the whole thing. So I ended up having to do a deal with some independent label on the record. You know, I had already put the work in, so the record, it was a good record. I had everybody on the record. I mean, we had Nate Dogg singing hooks. We had uh, Butch Cassidy singing hooks. We had Keisha Cole singing hooks. We had the Vidal, and uh, we had the whole, the Link was on the, the record. We had Mr. Marv on the record. We had Juice on the record. Um, man, the record had so many good features on there, man. It was a nice, nice album. But it didn't do nothing. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I think the first record, I mean, the second album they put out on No Limit kind of killed their audience, and nobody never really wanted to take a chance with them. And then it didn't have that No Limit push behind it. You know, it, just, it didn't get that push that it, the first couple, the first two albums got. So it didn't do well, and um, Bad Day went on his own way to start his own thing, and Crook was kind of left in the wind, and I ended up moving to Las Vegas and, you know, something else. Man. You know, that's kind of the whole, you know, that's kind of the, the whole the steady modern story right there in a nutshell.
This is a Cygnus.net exclusive.